Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite murder she podcast in hours two. We are very happy to be back from our brief hiatus. I am, of course, your co-host, TJ. I'm Bridget. And what is the episode that we're going to be talking about this week, Bridget? <laughs> You're like, I just show up and cash the paychecks. Um, we're talking about episode episode nine of season three, Obituary for a Dead Anchor. And in this episode, uh, someone who hosts a news magazine show decides they want to do a profile on Jessica. And then there's an old switcheroo where somebody else actually shows up in Cabot Cove to interview her. And his boat explodes. And the trick is, he wasn't actually on it. So is he a murderer? Was he the intended victim? What's going to happen? We don't know. And I have to say, Teach, um, I am really happy that we're in Cabot Cove because I love being in Cabot Cove. But this does not feel like a Cabot Cove episode to me. This feels like a New York episode that yeah. just happens to take place in Cabot Cove. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that assessment. Um, and I think part of that is because, unfortunately, Seth is not in this episode, which is always disappointing. What is up with that? I went to go search, like, what was William Wyndham doing that he had a conflict? And I couldn't find anything. So, listeners, if you know some inside scoop, please give it to us. Because, yeah, we're missing Seth, but we do have Amos. And... We have the mayor. It's Sam Booth's first appearance. It's the first time we've ever seen him. I will never not laugh at the hysterically exaggerated main accent that is adopted for this episode. Jessica! <laughs> of for the him minute or, he says, um, or Tom Bosley, because they both do a pretty dreadful main accent. Well, Tom Bosley's, I think, is at least, like, in keeping with, you know, a sort of curmudgeonly older man kind of thing, his vibe. But uh-huh. this mayor one is, like, something that you would see in, like, a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. Like, <laughs> I'm reminded of this Scooby-Doo cartoon, Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, which takes place, I'm pretty sure, in Massachusetts, but it's all, you know, similar. Uh-huh. And ha- they similarly have these broad accents that are just truly hilarious to hear. Do Jessica again, because you, you sounded like Sam Booth when you did that. Do you think you could do I it could. again? Jessica! <laughs> It's the end. It's like the car. Yeah. And Ms. Fletcher. <laughs> Ms. Fletcher. Um, and of course, it's like a double whammy because without – I mean, we have like a substitute doctor and I'm sure we'll talk about him in a second. But without Seth, we just have like the townies run amok. Like Amos is doing all kinds of weird stuff, although he actually kind of starts to solve a crime this time, which I was very proud of him for. But he's like, you know – takes off his sheriff outfit and buys a new suit so he can look good on TV and it's just being like totally embarrassing. And we have Sam like rolling up to the reporters in a fishing hat with like lures dangling from it. And it's like, you're the mayor. Like, this is so embarrassing. So uh, I think the town needs Seth to be a voice of reason. Well, it's interesting that you say that because that's so much what Jessica doesn't want to happen. Like, you know, there's that moment when she's being interviewed, walking down the street, and the, you know, the interviewer is asking her these probing questions. And some of them are mm-hmm. more than a little disingenuous. They're basically like, what's a, what's a gal like you doing in a, sh- you know, a podunk place like this? Mm-hmm. And she's like, no, 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 I'm not going to stand for this, you know. But yeah. it's ironic because the episode itself, as you rightly point out, really doesn't show the Cabot Covers in very sophisticated light. Like, they look like and act like a bunch of rubes. Yeah, all of them. I mean, the reporters and the um, the, the the journalist and the crew are all staying at a hotel, and like that guy, like listens, to, just like listens to phone conversations. 
Um, I mean, there, and he's like starstruck, you know, so it's like the whole town is just full of like total absolute misfits. And here's Jessica, like trying to present them in such a good light. And she's like, I would never leave. This is my home. And it's really great to come here and get away from the world and just be real. And then there's like Amos Tupper rolling up to interview, not even realizing that he's on TV at the moment. Right. And not only that, but, you know, (laughs) renting out a boat to someone he barely it's just there's a lot going on it's and you're right i think that it's tonally strange to see all these happenings in cabot cove because we just are, it's not as homey and cozy as yeah. a lot of the other cabot cove episodes yeah because someone you know these larger than life figures are invading the space and really making it all about them yeah yeah and i think i mean we just mentioned a bunch of like comedic elements but those are that's like pretty much all the comedic elements in this and I think what I love about the Cabot Cove episodes is, like, the merry band of misfits has all kinds of, like, cutesy shenanigans, right? And we just – we don't really get that in this. It's like somebody is ha- – the, the one reporter is having an affair with another from the news magazine, but he's still married. Um, he's been interviewing a drug lord um, who's, like, involved in organized crime, and that guy might have put a hit out on him. So there's just – and then it turns out it was – there's, like – Stuff happening with their ratings and whether they should fire the older anchor because the two newer ones are hotter with audiences and ultimately the older one is the one who tried to kill him because he wants to take the job. And so it's like – it's very like um, sort of I think cutthroat, you know, skeezy, you know, like sort of urban storyline. Yes. Now, there's a lot going on in what you just said. So I think – Sorry. I want to help unpack some this of this. This is what happens so first, post-hiatus. You just have, like, all this stuff you have to, like, word vomit out, right? Right. So, first of all, I think that it's very timely that we're doing this episode now, given that both Tucker Carlson and Don Lemon were both fired from their respective news networks just such before a good we point. sat down to record. Just yesterday. Um, <laughs> and so it's, you know, there is this sense of, you know. The sensationalism media, of news. Yep. And this, which we can see, obviously, in the 80s in this kind of. In the very first moments of this episode, where, as you rightly point out, there's the gotcha of, well, aren't you connected with crime and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's supposed to be like a profile of an art collector or something, right? And then he's like, aren't you connected with the mob? Aren't you a drug lord? It's like – You went to Miami. Clearly, you must be a criminal. Right. (laughs) Don't tell Sophia Petrillo. (laughs) I was like, what's wrong? Maybe he's just hanging out with Blanche. I mean, you know, she is the local attraction. (laughs) But be that as it may. So, I mean, there is that sense of, you know, the, as you as you called it, the cutthroat world of, you know, New York media, yeah. um, which is very much in the news, not only because of Don Lemon and Tucker Carlson, but also of Succession. Like, you know, it's, it's an episode yeah. that feels very timely. It feels timely. The other thing that felt timely was there's uh, – they're trying to lay out what the next program is, and the producer tells one of them they're going to go to Nebraska because there's a story where a boy has gotten onto the girls' basketball team. And I was like, well, this also, we wouldn't phrase it that way today, but this also feels like what is constantly in the news as we're being told stories about uh, which kids are going on which sports team and how that might affect trans rights and how that might affect the rights of the others, right? Like, it felt like, oh my gosh, like, news stories haven't changed in 35 years. Right. So, you know, it, it just also shows the extent to which many of the things that we're grappling with today that feel so novel have really deep roots and are not... I mean, it's not to say that they don't, haven't reached a new pitch in today's environment, right, but right. they have antecedents and r- deeper okay, roots. Okay, so that's what I was trying to say, but yeah, you said it just like so much better. Yeah, so what... <laughs> the things that seem like fresh and novel and like in the news today 
have these like deeper roots and we have to remind ourselves culture has been grappling with the same kinds of things for a long time. That's very wise. And kudos to Murder, She Wrote for, as we've said so many times here at CCG, like is so adept at tapping into the affairs of the moment. Like it's very Mm -hmm. much able to glom on to the things that are current in its own moment. And I think that maybe helps contribute to why it's a show that maintains a kind of relevance that other shows from that era do not. Despite the fact that, you know, people still write about them like yourself. You know what? Just last night, uh, Magnum P.I. was the final Jeopardy question. Well, everything old is new again. So speaking of the relevance of 80s shows, and you know what? None of those punk contestants got it right. And it was a really easy question. That what was, well, I don't, we don't need to get too far afield, but what was the question? Is this really easy? Um, what soundstage did they shoot on? Oh. The soundstage of what other famous series? Oh, Murder, She Wrote? <laughs> no, yeah. they shot in Hawaii. Come on. Oh, uh, Hawaii Five O. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't know that I would have got that immediately, but with the, with the prodding. For- with me, I mean, when it said TV history, I was like, boom, I got this. Right. And then the question said, Magnum PI soundstage. And I was like, don't need to read the question. Got it. I got it. Yeah. So I'm a, TJ is like, please edit all this out because you're just like rambling about Jeopardy right now. I'm just so happy to be back to in Cabot Cove Gazette. I think that our listeners by now, after, you know, over a year of <laughs> listening to us, know that nonsense. tangents are are part of the appeal. <laughs> like, we have little fireside chats about Murder, She Wrote. That's the brand. That is who it we is are. The brand. But anyway, back to the subject at hand. I mean, what I uh, let's go back to talking about, like, when Jessica is defending Cabot Cove and, like, her – she's not really defending the town so much as her choice to live there. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, she says that, like, it's because um, she likes to get away from the world. But I think it's also worth mentioning that in this episode and the next one, she talks a lot about Frank. She sure does. It's like the writers were like, you know, it's been three seasons. Maybe we should give a little more backstory here. So she talks about how she lived in this house. She and Frank bought the house together. uh, And it's run down and they love it. And she'll never move away from it. Right. Because she says he died here. Like in Cabot Cove, that is. Mm -hmm. Like that's a pretty powerful statement. And I mean, it's one of those. And I, I once again must give kudos to Angela Lansbury for like these really authentic moments. She sells it. Mm-hmm. Like she really nails Jessica's sense of pride in where she lives and like her investment, her emotional investment. And as someone from a small town who, as Bridget can attest, can get very defensive about my small oh, town. Oh, Lordy, Kenny, ever. He's allowed to make fun of it, you guys. He's allowed to make fun of his town. He's allowed to make fun of West Virginia. He's allowed to make fun of Appalachia in general. But nobody else dare open um, their mouths about it. I would think that as a queer person, you would understand that mentality since we're allowed to call each other queer and faggot and who knows what else. <laughs> well, you call yourself that. Let's <laughs> – I don't call you that. <laughs> well, yeah, but you're more uptight than I am, so. <laughs> anyway, the point is Lansbury totally sells it with pride. And then also that wonderful thing that she is so capable of doing where her eyes look just a little bit misty uh, as if – I believe in that moment that she has grief, but it's an old grief that she's been working through, and but it's still there. You know, it's just, oh, it's lovely what she does in that moment. And it's so interesting to me as someone who spent the last year studying grief and how it works that, you know, a lot of people have to move on because memories are too painful. They leave houses, they leave towns, they get a new cat or dog. uh, And she's like, you know, no, I want to stay in the exact same house where Frank's memories are. Like, that's mm-hmm. what matters to her. It's so sweet. Yeah. And what also struck me about that about that conversation is the way she describes her house. Like, 
So when we first started this podcast and I was watching this with my partner, one of the first things he said was that he loved Jessica's house because it was one of the few sets uh-huh. that he wished was real or that felt like it was real. Uh-huh. And so when she's describing it and she's talking about the draftiness and how she's, you know, made it her own by hanging up the pictures and all that. I really think, again, that's one of those moments that really lands with anyone who's a homeowner or has lived in the same house for a very long time. You feel a sense of ownership and intimacy. And it's, I think, of a piece with how invested Murder Sherrod is in the space of Jessica's house as literally someplace you feel like you could live. Like it feels not just like a set, but like an actual house. I also thought it was um, very reminiscent of Lansbury herself, sort of a known homebody who never really... Like, she went through that period where she was on Broadway and living in New York and, like, partying. But um, mostly she's sort of known for keeping to herself and keeping to her house and taking care of her house, which just went on the market. Um, and that it's it's actually – it's if you look at the pictures of it, list of the listing, like, granted, it's all been staged and whatever. But, you know, it's not it's not like the house of, like, a millionaire, you know? It's just like a house, right? She's very homebody in right. that way. And I thought that was just cute that there was, like, this parallel between – Jessica and Lansbury. Yeah, and I also appreciate that to shift to the person who's interviewing her, that he actually does respect her choice in that matter. Like, it would have been very easy for him to be a kind of asshole New Yorker, but he's, you know, he he changes his questioning appropriately to be like, well, okay, what makes you want to stay here? As a, And not, not hyping up the provincial nature of Kevin Cove. Speaking of New York, at one point someone says... They drove all night. It's only 350 miles. And I think they mean from New York, right? One would assume, yeah. So is this where Cabot Cove is? 350 miles from New York? We got to map that out. Oh, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even think to Google it. Is I mean, so if we go two hours from Boston and 350 miles from New York, we should be able to – we can't triangulate because that's only two things. But we're starting <laughs> to be able to triangulate its position, right? Right. We could. I mean, if we found out how far it was from, say um, – What's uh, Portland? We could figure because they talk about going to they Portland. They do talk sometimes. about Portland, but I don't remember if we ever knew exactly how long it was going to take to get there. Well, we need to do it. We need to Rats. do a rewatch or, or rely on our faithful listeners. Murder on to the Bus, us. everybody's favorite episode, right? Yeah, figure out exactly how far we are from these different locales so we can pinpoint where Cabot Cove should ideally be located. So let's talk about um, Amos Tupper attempting to solve the crime because I was so proud of him. Go on. Well, he usually, you know, he's a bumbling idiot who gets everything wrong (laughs) and he completely depends on Jessica or Jessica has to point blank correct him or do the thing where she sort of gently goads him into something and kind of pretends like it was his idea in the first place. And in this one, Amos is the one who figures out like this reporter asked me to rent him a boat and he did and he paid out of his own pocket and he wasn't happy about it. And then as the reporter is... I don't know. He's not sailing away. What's he doing? Motoring away? Yeah. Yeah. He's a well, motor. Whatever. I mean, sailing is, I think, a term that's not specific to sails. Like Gliding away on the Jaws Lake, by the way, those of you who know Universal. Um, as he's gliding away, the boat explodes. And then the guy, Jessica figures out the guy is actually still alive. And when they confront him, Amos is like really upset. Like, you should not have allowed us to believe you're dead. 
And the fact that you didn't is pointing fingers at you. And he starts going through this list of things that he thinks are true. And usually at that point, like as an audience, I was watching like Jessica and I'm like, this is usually where Jessica's going to start making faces and explaining why he's wrong, right? And instead he looks at her and he goes, you okay with all of that, Miss Fletcher? And she's like, actually, yeah, like... You kind of got it this time. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was a really interesting, an interesting choice for the writers to make to give Amos that character growth, that he's not the usual bumbling idiot in this episode. And I wonder if that also has something to do with Seth's absence, because with, with Sans Seth, we don't necessarily have the voice of reason that he re- so often represents. Like, he's the more sensible partner for Jessica and her exploits and escapades. So without him... We need someone to fulfill that role. And the other doctor is not much of a presence. Like, he's the one who helps them figure out it's not really, that they, the body is not the person they thought it was. Because he does the autopsy. Which, missing toes is gross, but I digress. I, it's such a weird clue, right? Yeah, so he's doing the autopsy on the body they find after the boat explodes. And it's missing two toes. And so he has Jessica ask the guy's ex-wife. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? And they figure out, well, this other reporter guy or producer, I'm very unclear, uh, had lost two toes to frostbite on an expedition. So it was him, not Kevin, our reporter, who was interviewing Jessica, who's dead. And then subsequently, we find that Kevin is, in fact, alive, which, as Amos says, makes him look like he planted the bomb to blow up the other guy, right? Yeah, so it's an odd turn of events. And also, it just, like, you know, to go back to what we said earlier, it doesn't feel like the usual kind of Cabot Cove murder. And so I was less interested in it than I might otherwise be. Because I'm just like, I uh-huh. don't particularly care about these characters that much. No, me either. And I wonder why that is. I, I think, you know, maybe it's just because they don't have any kind of intrinsic connection to Cabot Cove. Well... I was thinking about that, and I, I, I mean, we often have people coming into Cabot Cove who are just blowing in for the day, and somehow we do still care about them, right? Sure. So I think that um, for me, it was just like there's not a lot of meat there. I mean, the Kevin, the guy who we think is dead and then isn't dead and then we think is the murderer and then isn't the murderer, um, I mean, he's just a reporter. And it seems like he's going to be, like, a bad guy who, like, digs up dirt in Cabot Cove, but he kind of doesn't. And he mm-hmm. kind of blows up – his boat blows up before he really, you know, gets to do much. The woman who first persuades Jessica to do the interview seems nice enough. But then we learn she's, like, having an affair with Kevin and he's still married and that's kind of all we learn about her. Yeah. So it's like, I don't really know them, right? And I don't really – there's not, there's not a lot of there there. Since you're usually the expert on sort of lesser known, to me, guest stars, are there any of the guest stars yeah. that are worth noting? Because I wonder if that's also part of it, because these aren't people that have a lot of like... There's not like red letter, classical Hollywood people that you got excited about. Right. Or even, it's not just that, there's just not a lot of presence. Like the only character who has any presence is the murderer. Like The actual the, murderer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the actual person who did it, whose name is eluding me at this exact moment, but... He's He's the one, the old guy, the old hat. He's so cute too. He has like bushy eyebrows and he has like twinkly eyes. He's just like so completely avuncular, right? Like this, and he calls himself like an institution, you know? So we have this idea that he's like a, I don't know what, what is he, TJ? Like a- He's a Cronkite. Yeah, yeah, that's what he is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very deliberately, I think that's who they're trying to evoke, yeah, this kind of, yeah. this holdover from an older period of news, when there was a more sense of authoritativeness to yes. the evening news. Like, this is the moment 
you know, in the 80s when that's beginning to really sort of collapse. Mm -hmm. Because we have news magazines now. And like, so that's much more subjective. It's much more entertainment focused. Yep. If I, you know, what occurred to me, and I'm glad you mentioned all this, because one of the, like, I don't think this is deliberate, but the thing that kept recurring to me as I was watching this episode is how much it feels like network, the movie, like Uh the way it's kind of portraying the changing mediascape of uh-huh. you know, the 70s and 80s particularly the old guy i mean i could picture him saying i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore like you could almost yeah. see him coming unglued in that way because as an older person and as someone who has been in the news business it's very hard for him to sort of accept that his time has passed and that he's being replaced and that news is now more about the the wrapping than the package as he talks about in his metaphor the wrapping like, paper is more important than the package yeah. So I guess what he means is like the the sort of star quality and beauty and sex appeal of the anchors is actually more important than the substance of the news they're delivering or the salaciousness of the story matters more than how unbiased and thorough the investigation into it is. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, just use Fox News to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier is it is notorious for the way that it hyperbolizes the news, regardless of where you stand politically i think that you can we can agree that fox news definitely leans into the hyperbolizing hyperbolizing of the news i mean we don't even need to they just like agreed to it publicly by settling that lawsuit (laughs) right exactly (laughs) and there was that remember that supreme court ruling that was like maybe it was a circuit court ruling where they were basically like they threw out the case because they were like will you the, the case hinged upon believing that something Tucker Carlson said was true. And they're like, well, nobody can feasibly believe that anything he says is true. Right. And so, you know, that's what makes his mo- – but his motivation, or at least not just his motivation, but his reasoning that he could get away with it seems rather flawed. It's just like, so you're going to rig this boat to blow up because you lo- – because yeah. as you put it, you'll learn a few things as a reporter, I guess. you learn how to blow up boats <laughs> As a reporter for you. That's a good point. How did he learn how to do that? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, a little bit of weak writing. But even aside from that, I was just like, okay, so you're resentful that you're going to be replaced. So your solution is to blow up the person who's replacing you. No, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the time that Jessica's trapped at that weird private hospital. And the two younger doctors scheme to kill the head doctor because he's going to pick one of them to replace him. Yeah. Do you remember that one? And it's like, okay, you guys, there is such an easier solution. Like, you you could get him to name both of you as co-stars, and then you wouldn't have to kill him, right? And I think the same is true here. Like, like this is very short-sighted, this murder plan, because you're killing these people because they're younger than you, but that doesn't make you younger. You're still going to get fired and replaced by somebody younger. It's just going to be a different somebody younger who's still alive, right? Right, it doesn't change the calculus no. of the network. Because, like, the whole premise, the whole reason behind his getting fired or getting replaced is that it's, as the, as the producer says, if I can, if I don't give on, on the small things to the executives, I'm not going to get the big things. Uh-huh. And, like, that's not going to change regardless of, you know, whether he's alive or not. <laughs> like, that's what I'm saying. Like, what the guy needs is hair dye and Botox and a facelift. Not to murder younger people. Like, murdering right. younger people doesn't make him more attractive to younger people. Or he so could very just, confusing. Or he could just pull the Bill O'Reilly model and just be deliberately inflammatory. Like, it doesn't, it's not like he, like, there are many more alternative routes he could have taken. 
then blow and it's not just that but he also blows up a boat like it's not like he poisoned him or yeah a boat that by the way amos put a hundred dollar deposit on amos isn't gonna get his deposit back now (laughs) hundred bucks is a lot of money in the 80s amos wanted his money back and now the whole boat's destroyed he's definitely not getting that deposit back but the other (laughs) thing t just like but he only attempted to kill one of them like what's he gonna do about the woman what's her name paula yeah what's he gonna do about her is he gonna try to kill her later yeah, there's a lot of questions. I have. I and if they're lovers, as we learn, like why not just kill them when they're together? Yeah, I have, I have, I have many, many questions. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, I didn't dislike this episode, but I didn't particularly like it either, just because I didn't feel like it really cohered. Like, and there usually in murder she yeah. as we've talked about, like there's something else. Even if the murder plot itself is nonsensical or it doesn't, you know, doesn't hold up under any kind of scrutiny, the characters yeah. at least can sell it either because of their star power or just, you know, the yep. fun of being in Cabot Cove or whatever. I'm just not... Of course, there's so much fun that we just overlook right. it. I'm... But this one isn't particularly fun, exactly. so I kind of just am like, meh. Right, because the affair doesn't really crackle. I'll tell you what I felt. I felt like we blew all of our energy writing the crossover that preceded this, and so <laughs> they're kind of out of gas, and this is a filler episode. Yeah, and we spent all of our money on the pyrotechnics, so, you know. I mean... That was a pretty cool special effect. Like, they blew up a boat in the Jaws Lake. Like, that was pretty cool. Yes, I'm guessing they were leaning on that a lot. That was probably where the whole budget went. Circling back to your guest star thing, although guest stars all make the same amount of money, so it wouldn't matter. But that that was probably where all the money went. Um, And by the way, Chad Everett, who plays Kevin, the should have been dead but isn't, should be the murderer but isn't guy, uh, he's uh, sort of the the name of the group. Mm Mm-hmm. The long TV right. career. Yeah, I mean, I will say the only the one part of the episode where is Jessica confronting the murderer. Like that was the part I think that was really effective. I want to talk about that. Yeah, because he's sitting there typing, which of course is meant to evoke her. the old timiness. Well, yeah, old timiness, well, but also her. her, right? And he's like, you know, and they have this tense conversation. And he just spills it all out. Like, there's not much. He just tells her. Yeah, yeah, and then he's like. I'll wait for you, you know, go ahead, call the sheriff, gonna, and I'll just sit here and keep typing. Dial no nine. Deal. I gotta finish this, I gotta change this ending and dial nine for an outside line. And it's like, what, yeah. what's what's happening right now? Like, you, so you just admitted a murder so that you could save your career, and now you have, yeah. to, I'm just like, okay. But he, but but I think that's, that's what makes him redeemable, right? Because he's not gonna right. run, he's not gonna try to kill her, he's not gonna deny it, he's just gonna wait for the sheriff to show up. Yeah. And our freeze frame is him like being, you know, like sort of pontificating over the typewriter and her back is to us as she's reaching for the phone. And that's our final freeze frame, which like, what is up with season three, man? Like, I know there's no happy endings to be found in season three. It's true. Yeah. And I think the moral of the story, kids, is that TV ratings are murder. Yeah, I mean, it does. That is something that I've learned repeatedly in television is that network executives are ruthless in their pursuit of ratings and that this has a cascading effect all the way down. Well, this is a moral, uh, a theme that comes up many times in the series. And of course, also, uh, especially with demographics, costs the series its own life at some point. So in 1996. Um, So it's really interesting how meta they're getting here. Mm, I know. Yeah, I mean, one wouldn't expect them to get quite this, you know, as you say, meta so early. So early. In the run, but, but you know, I was thinking because it's all about a news magazine story, and you know, the lead-in to Murder She Wrote, except for its final season, was um, sixty minutes. 
Ah. And so I think, like, can you imagine it's Sunday night and you, like, you're, you eat dinner and then you watch 60 Minutes and then you watch this episode and it's all about, like, news anchors and ratings for a news program. Oh, like, yeah. you couldn't help but correlate the two, yeah. right? Like, you would totally be thinking of 60 Minutes the whole time. Oh, that's really smart. See, this is why we need you on this podcast is because you have this kind of industrial – Well, it's not really smart. I mean, that's just – it was just the programming. I know, but most people – what I'm saying is most people wouldn't know that or remember it even if they were alive back then. Well – Okay. Take the compliment, would yeah. you? I'm trying to take the compliment because you know what? Somebody told me that I never take compliments and I need to learn to do that. Yeah. For someone who so desperately craves approval, you don't take compliments very well. You don't need to be airing my laundry on the podcast. You don't need to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you correct my pronunciation sometimes, so I have to give it back to you somehow. Okay. So listen, I want to talk now with the remaining minute that we have about – that's because your pronunciation is wrong – Jessica playing chess with the replacement doctor because that just seems like cheating on Seth, especially since we know she bought Seth a chess set in an earlier episode. And she even says like, oh, that move, you got that from Seth. Then why aren't you playing with Seth, man? Because he's visiting his sister in South Carolina. That's why. Did they tell us that? Yeah. That's oh. what, that's that's the explanation for why he's not there because he flees because he doesn't want to deal with the whole hullabaloo. Well, I know that he was the only person in town who didn't vote to do this show, which is so cute too, right? Like the there's such a small town that the entire town can vote. Right. But I guess I I missed that he was supposed to be in South Carolina. Yep, he's visiting his sister. Well, that's stupid. He should be playing chess with he Jessica. Should. And you know, I mean, this guy's fine, but like he's nothing special. No, he's utterly forgettable. We have seen him before, though. He was the – we had two doctors in Dead Man's Gold, if you remember that. Oh, yes, yes, Because yes. he did the autopsy and then had to call Seth to talk about it. Um, so we have seen him before, but we're not going to see him again as a doctor. He's going to mm. be like other, you know, one-off characters. Right. So I don't know a, what they were doing. A non-entity, that's why. Were they ever trying to introduce a new character? I don't know. No, it's, it doesn't work. I'm of the opinion, no. as a TV watcher, that all the characters that I should care about should be introduced in the first episode, and if you introduce them in the middle of the season, I get very upset because it disturbs my whole sense of how this universe works. Unless it's like a soap opera or something like that, but, you know, a traditional drama, like, I'm like, give me my set of episodes, give me my yeah, characters, yeah. and then... Yeah. Well, that's what, you know, classic good writing would say. I'm just, I... I right now am in I, – I, I'm up to my neck in a particular series and a particular fandom that TJ has actually just listened to me talk about for probably eight hours already today. I believe the word you're looking for is ad nauseum. <laughs> but one of, the, one of those characters was introduced in episode five of the first season. So that's why I'm like, I, I don't know how to respond to this moment. <laughs> Well, not to get on a, a tangent, but that does happen a lot in Ryan Murphy shows and it drives me crazy. Yeah, but yeah. anyway. But you know, uh, in in the case of our beloved Murder, She Wrote, let's say episode two, because episode one was Murder of Sherlock Holmes and it wasn't until episode two that we were in Cabot Cove. But then right. we wouldn't get okay, Sam well. Booth. And I'm really glad we've been introduced to Sam Booth. I loved John Aston; He was great. Uh, but we need another townie. And so now, you know, since he is in prison now, we, <laughs> we, we get Sam Booth. So it's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's probably that's a good place like a, to stop. <laughs> it is a good place to stop. So uh, for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I am your co-host TJ. I'm Bridget. And we will see you next week. 
The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.